Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Former Paradise resident Craig Allen Heath decided at age 14 that he wanted to be a novelist, but meanwhile made his living as a journalist and technical writer. Over a year before he and his wife lost their home in the Paradise Campfire, he sat down to write a love letter to his North State roots. Craig Heath's debut novel is set in a fictional Sierra Nevada foothill town he calls Eden Ridge. The title of the novel, Where You Will Die, comes from the Old Testament Book of Ruth. Craig Heath, welcome. Thanks very much, Nancy. It's good to be with you again. Now, the title of your book is also the name of one of your characters, and uh, is there a relationship there? (laughs) There is, in the sense that um, uh, when I was first putting this together and starting to come up uh, with characters, uh, the Book of Ruth, I just knew kind of a little bit about in the sense that it was about very much about loyalty. Um, the loyalty of of Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And uh, this story very much is about loyalty. In fact, the tagline that I use for it is, loyalty can save a life or destroy it. And there are a few themes in it, and uh, the actions of some of the various characters kind of prove that out. So I used uh, the line itself as uh, the title. I had an earlier title, but this one was better. So the title is Where You Will Die. Now, would you say that that's what distinguishes your murder mystery from others? In the sense of it being what, based on Yeah, more than just a murder mystery. Well, I did sort of shoot for that. (laughs) I wanted a little (laughs) bit more than just, you know, uh, a plain old whodunit. Uh, and but I didn't know uh, what I was after when I first started. Uh, I literally started with some characters, um, Alan Wright, the the lead character, and some of the women that that are called the little red hens, call themselves the little red hens in the book, and Ruth, and the setting uh, of Eden Ridge, which I used uh, Paradise uh, because my wife and I lived there for the first twenty one years of our marriage, and we loved it there, and it's a beautiful place. And so I was really just casting around for a story. I didn't know what kind of story it would really turn out to be. So I had these characters, I had this place, and I said, all right, how do I, how do I kick off some action? How do I make something happen? Hmm, a murder mystery sounds good. <laughs> and so that was literally all that it took to, to sort of set things in motion. Well, one thing that I appreciated, you hired an editor for this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of would-be writers out there who listen and would like uh, maybe suggestions from you. And that's one that you um, followed up on hiring an editor. And I think that's such a good idea because even experienced writers, really good writers, can use the help of, of an editor. Wouldn't you say? How, how did an editor help you? Oh, my goodness, <laughs> in so many ways. Number one, I think, is that when I'm writing, and I assume other people are like this, I'm hearing something in my head that I think is getting down onto the page. When someone else reads that, they're not necessarily Uh hearing Mm -hmm. what I heard. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that until someone else reads it and tells you that this is how it struck them. Now, a reader, a friend, a family member, anybody could tell you that, But if you're really trying to then take your work to that next level and get it to where you want it to be, you need someone who has uh, the training and the experience of reading and feeding back to you what they, how they perceive it in a way that's actually going to help you take the next step and do more work with it other than just, you know, just sort of a general opinion. So number one, it's not just a sounding board. It's somebody who is really kind of looking at your work, taking taking very, very detailed view of it, and then coming back to you and saying, I think you'd do better if you if this if you did this, or have you thought about doing that? Or, you know, so there's there's this very, very big overarching way that a person helps you. And then 
they help you with such incredible detail. Uh, you know, you said somebody's eyes were hazel back on page 52, and 100 <laughs> pages later, you're saying they're blue. Uh, things like that that you wouldn't necessarily catch without somebody else's, you know, really detailed view. Yeah, because I've had the experience that a writer goes over and over and over a text. You think, okay, now I'm ready to send this to the publisher and yeah. hands it over to somebody else. I happen to have been that somebody else. Uh, and I found so many things that had been totally uh, look, overlooked. So, um, so thank you for hiring an editor and for uh, <laughs> explaining the role that an editor can play. Now, uh, I would really like for you to start out this murder mystery from page one, just okay. like we, if we're the reader, how we would get into this story. Would you read that okay. uh, first page or so for us, Craig? Sure. Thanks very much. The spirit of Ruth McKenzie was visible everywhere in her shop except her body. Any other Thursday morning for 40 years found Ruth at her desk on the mezzanine level above the display floor of Ruth's Reveries, the largest and best stocked antique store in the tiny foothill town of Eden Ridge. On this bright morning in late May, she was not at her desk. Instead, she lay sprawled beside it, legs and arms frozen at grotesque angles, forming the signature pose of a violent death. A pool of blood, black after hours in the open air, formed an ugly halo around her paper white hair. The once precious fluid stained the rolled collar of her favorite taupe cashmere sweater. Her eyes, open and glazed, stared unseeing over her shoulder as though she still watched with hope for customers who, like her, graced their present lives with the beauty and craft found in commonplace items from the past. A few minutes past 8.30 a.m., the bells over the entrance door chimed, but Ruth did not hear them. A retired couple entered and strolled the aisles, perusing the aged and rare items lining the many shelves of the cavernous store. The woman was drawn to Ruth's Victorian-era display cabinets fashioned from hand-carved oak and walnut. Within each, shelves of marble quarried in far-off lands showcased set after set of delicate floral patterned china. The man stopped near the door, mesmerized by a large, multi-shelf display Ruth had called the Boy Trap. Locked behind beveled glass panels, the crowded shelves offered dozens of items selected to appeal to males of every age. One shelf overflowed with knives and razors, while another bore box after box of patches, badges, buttons, and medals. Boy Scout merit album emblems and detective shields lay in tight formation with posthumous purple hearts surrendered by widows who could not stand to wet the cameo of General Washington with one more tear. Hello, the woman called out. Could someone give me a price on this? She pointed to a lone blue willow gravy boat, hoping to replace the one shattered long ago by her now grown son. The cabinet's locked. Can someone help me? Such a couple ringing the bells 24 hours earlier would have enjoyed Ruth's famous treatment. She would descend the steps from the mezzanine with a large clanking key ring in hand, bidding good day and offering tea. As she passed the boy trap, she would unlock it and smile at the man, her quick gait and bright eyes belying her 70-plus years on earth and four decades as a savvy businesswoman. Opening the china hutch, she would chat cheerfully with the woman, certain of ringing up the full asking price for the gravy boat after throwing in a well-worn camp knife at half price. Hearing no answer, the woman sighed and made for the door, silently motioning her husband to follow. He nearly protested, spying a vintage Buck Skinner he coveted, but fell in line and followed his wife again, setting the bells ringing. Ruth would have fired any clerk who offered such shoddy service. This is So that's how it opens. Yes, this is the opening chapter, and this is Craig Allen Heath reading from his book, Where You Will Die. And we get to know this character named Ruth. And you mentioned another character, and I thought it was interesting that this, the protagonist's name happens to be Alan, which is your middle name. Your name is Craig mm -hmm. Allen Heath. Well, you spell yours like my dad spelled his, A-L-L-E-N, and the character in your book is A-L-A-N. Is there any uh, alter ego, or is there any relationship there to the names being similar? The the names, yes. I've I've often used variations of my names, 
my various names, you know, given and otherwise uh, for characters in stories that I've written. Uh, my full name with my Catholic confirmation is Craig Allen Patrick John Heath. I've used variations of John Patrick, Patrick John, Alan John, Alan Craig, you know, all kinds of things. The when I first started out, I I called him Alan Coleman, which is my mother's maiden name. Okay, but in the long run, that just didn't ring right. Uh, and there's a lot behind the idea of just adding right to it. Uh, right being uh, an older, you know, in in earlier English and and beyond that, it was someone who did something with your hands. The wheel uh, right, uh, wheel right, you know, and and it also writing in terms of. Uh, writing words, and also the idea of someone being in the right. <laughs> so I threw all that together. But Alan is literally me. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> characters are always autobiographical, but he's literally me in the sense that I, I said, I took myself, I took things that I do, like wear kilts. I wear these modern kilts, and then I put a clerical collar on him, and made him somebody who has exactly the same cosmology and, and ethics that I do, and did with him what I am not a brave enough man to do myself, which is actually hold forth as a minister and say, I think I've got something good to tell the world, uh, you know, uh, and I'm going to do it. I'm actually, you know, he's successful in technology, and then he's coming up. This is his, like, his, his second career of being a minister, a real minister, helping people hands-on. And so all of that came because you formerly were formerly were a technical writer, a journalist and technical writer. And yes. when you introduce Alan, you describe him as a tall and imposing man in a black canvas kilt, boots, and a cleric's collar. So this is where we first meet this character named Alan. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, skipping over to chapter seven. Uh, because he's uh, getting out of his cab, and the cab driver is another character, a man named Travis, uh, that has, that owns this cab company, mm -hmm. cab service, cab and limousine service. And now, uh, Alan, you say in starting Chapter 7 that Alan finally called for his ride home. Is there anything we should know before you read us the start of Chapter 7? Just that. Immediately okay. after the the section I just read at the beginning, okay. he comes in. He comes into her shop. She had asked him to come see her at, at that morning, uh, the morning before she was killed. And so he finds her. He finds her body, and they're they're very very good friends. And so he's very broken up about it. And so in the meantime, from that to like you say, chapter seven, he has called the police. He has been with you know the police explaining things. Uh, all kinds of things have happened in there. Uh, you know, uh, depending on how much time we have, I could explain it. He's now had a run in with her daughter and and her husband, and so now uh, he's calling his uh, cab for a ride home from the police department. He cannot drive because some years back he was in a terrible auto accident with his wife and she was killed. And so his anxiety has made it so that he literally cannot drive. There, you know, doctor's orders. He is not allowed to have a driver's license anymore. So he, he either walks or or calls for a cab everywhere he goes. So throughout the book, anytime he has to get somewhere farther than, you know, like say a mile, he calls for a cab. And that's where we are at this point in chapter seven. Okay. Would you read that for us? Sure. Hours later, Alan finally called for his ride home. Travis arrived and drove his fare uphill on Ridgeway, past the wagon wheel, past the auto repair shops and equipment rental yards clustered outside the antique district, never troubling with small talk. Alan assumed Travis had learned of Ruth's death through the infamous Eden Ridge grapevine. Usually talkative and excitable, he appreciated his driver's silence. Beyond the town center, the shade darkened on the roadway as the number and size of trees grew. Alan stared out the window, watching them flicker by like so many rows of picket fence. Eden Ridge once boomed with the logging trade, harvesting large areas of nearby wild forests, now long since regrown. But within the town limits, no one felled a tree that didn't need felling. 
Hundred-foot-tall ponderosa pines stood at attention in close order formation, competing with shorter and more curvaceous black oaks and manzanita for sunlight. Home lots of a half acre or more were scattered among the businesses, so treed you couldn't see from the house from the road. People didn't so much carve out spots for their shops and houses as they found ways to build between the trunks. Lawns were impossible to grow, so deep was the shade. Most yards were of barren, compacted red clay soil, hard as concrete, and littered year-round with pine needles and oak leaves. The people of Eden Ridge did not conquer the forest to build their town. They nestled within it as the ubiquitous squirrels and deer and birds had done since the world was new. This is Craig Allen Heath reading from his debut novel, Where You Will Die. My guest is Craig Allen Heath, and he has written a book in dedication to Paradise, California. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Craig Heath, who has written a book that he dedicates to paradise, which in his novel he calls Eden Ridge. And I think people who, uh, here in the North State, so many people are familiar with the town of paradise as it was before the fire, uh, would recognize, oh, Eden Ridge is paradise. Do people Mm -hmm. recognize that from your description? Uh the few people who have read the book, of the few people who have read the book, <laughs> the fewer who <laughs> know Paradise. Yes, very much. And it's uh, I strove to get across the idea of the beauty of that town. As I mentioned, uh, my wife, Pat, and I lived there for the first 21 years of our marriage and loved it there and uh, lived among the trees in that forest that I described. And uh I took a lot of liberties with Eden Ridge in terms of what things are there. I rearranged some things. I added some things. But in whenever I describe just the, the beauty of the place and the trees and the sunlight and things like that, I'm very much reaching back to that time before the fire and all that time that we lived there and, and loved it. Well, uh, we don't want to give it too, away too much or spoil the fun for readers, but um, I, I do enjoy the way you describe some of your characters. For example, uh, a little further into the story, somebody says, is talking to Alan, Alan Wright, and he says, so you're Scott? Wright sounds English to me. So would you read that section? Is there anything we need to know before uh, this conversation? Oh, well, okay. So we're we're quite a ways into the story now. And Alan and I mentioned the, the women, the little red hens are, they're on the trail. Uh, they're definitely working on who, who could have done this, this terrible thing. Oh, by the, the way, police uh, our, excuse hmm? me for interrupting, but we mentioned the little red hens and um, they do come up. They're, they're one of the characters, you might say, in your book. And also, uh, when you were reading that previous section, uh, you mentioned the name of a coffee shop, and I don't n- mm-hmm. realize that people knew that was a, a name, not just you say they passed the wagon wheel. And mm-hmm. uh, so we might clarify that that wasn't just a wagon wheel lying on the side of the road, that that was a <laughs> coffee shop where people right. get together. And, and you might elaborate who these little red hens are. 
Okay, Maybe I well, should call them little red detectives. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there is there is that. The way I set this up was that Ruth, she's been she's lived in in Eden Ridge for forty years. She's been a very successful businesswoman, and successful business people, especially in small towns, tend to be very civic minded and very civically involved. And that's how I set up her and her five friends that call themselves the little red hens. They're very civically minded, organized. They get involved in things, you know, blood drives and food drives and things like that. So they're very well known in the community. You know, this uh, and, somewhat reproduces a conversation I had just this morning about how we enjoy, say, living in Chico or you mentioned living in Paradise because people seem to be very community minded, not in like a huge metropolitan area, say the Bay Area. And that's one of the charms of living in a small town, the sense of community. So forgive yes, my interruption. I think so too. Back no, to no, the no story. problem. Yeah, because, <laughs> and and uh, so they became this uh, posse, if you will, who you know, I mean, they were great friends with her for many, many years. Alan is a newcomer to Eden Ridge. He's only moved there in the last couple of years to build this spiritual center. Uh, it was Ruth who befriended him and, and convinced him to move there to Eden Ridge. So they've become very tight, but the the women, her friends, the little red hens, they've been they've been friends for decades, you know. And uh, so they too then have taken up uh, the the task of of finding her killer. And at this point in the story, where where we're going to talk about here, we've engaged a uh, uh, a lawyer. Uh, and he's, you know, kind of a combination of a number of things. Uh, and I called him Danny Newland, and he's like this big bear of a man and older and, you know, seen it all sort of kind of thing. And they've, uh, the police have captured a man that they believe might be the killer, a young man named Jason Clay. Uh, and Danny Newland is, is uh, defending him. But Alan thinks he might know something. And we should we should try to question him. And so he and Danny Newland are in the jail, and they're in one of the conference rooms in the in the jail. And as they're waiting for uh, Jason Clay to show up to talk to him, this is uh, Danny Newland uh, talking to him when he says, "So Newland said, you a Scot? Right sounds English to me. No, mostly Irish. My great granddad came over from County Galway." A kilt and a collar, Newland chuckled, eyeing Alan up and down. Quite the combination. Bet you're popular with the ladies. If I am, they don't show it, so I don't know. Newland's grinned, red in his already ruddy cheeks. Now I know I like you. You're a good liar. We're all liars, Alan said, returning the smile, but most of us don't accept the idea. We always blame the other guy. That's where the trouble comes in. Good point. I agree. Newland ran his hand through his thin, graying hair. I'm told you have your own religion. No, but I have a message. What's that? In a nutshell, we come from the world, not into it. We're expressions of the world the way leaves are expressions of a tree. We belong in the universe as much as a star or a starfish. We're all the same. We're all connected. And the only divisions between ourselves and others, ourselves and the world, ourselves and God, are fictions that we create in our minds. That's quite a nutshell, Newland said. It's not my message. It's the perennial philosophy, the core of every uh, mystical and religious tradition. I'm just trying to pass it on. It sounds very, I don't know, new agey, but you used the word God. God is a word we use to fit infinity in our brains. So that's kind of Alan's, co uh, you know, cosmology there. Mm -hmm. His spiritual creed. And mm -hmm. I was thinking as I read that, that, hmm, that may be Craig Allen Heath's <laughs> creed, because it seemed like it would be yes, difficult for you to write that if you didn't believe it yourself. That's very true. That is my creed. And that's, you know, I'll quickly try to tell you the origin story of the, uh, of Alan Wright is that, and uh, I spoke to you about this back in 2017 when we talked about uh, my my poetry book, The End of an Ordinary Life. I I was I was seeking a creative outlet around in 2016, 2017, and I was thinking about 
trying to claim myself of being a minister online, you know, with a YouTube channel and write some books and things like that. And then I realized, no, I'm I'm not a good enough man because if I'm going to claim to be a minister, I need to be a minister and I need to be out there helping people. And I'm I'm not that good of a man. And I said, well, what if this same guy that I think I am or think I could be in another life, what if he was a protagonist in a novel? And that was the uh, the starting point. And I imbued him with myself, with with all of my own ideas about life, the universe, and everything. And uh, so that little statement of his creed is, yeah, it's definitely mine. Well, uh, further on in the book, you quote, you have the words, we are what we think, and you're going to elaborate that. But uh, there are a lot of people who say that we are what we think. We, I think Oprah Winfrey, for example, uh, has that message, too, that... Uh, and so do you want to have anything else you'd like to say about when he says we are what we think? Well, part of the setup for him becoming, you know, sort of a amateur detective in this story is that Ruth, you know, was this this scion of Eden Ridge. People loved her. Everybody loved her. So why would she be killed and for what? And people are, you know, saying, well, it couldn't be a, this kind of person or it couldn't be that kind of person. And he, he says, no, we're all we're all human beings. We're all capable of good and evil uh, from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. We choose between good and evil. And the the premise as to why we make the choices that we make comes out of a number of traditions that say you are what you think you are. You manifest in your life what you think you should manifest or will manifest. And I don't mean that necessarily in any sort of, you know, kind of mystical way of saying that you you control physics with your mind. I'm saying that what we believe about ourselves is what we will bring into the world as ourselves. So if I believe that I'm a bad person, or I believe that other people are bad people, and I'm, you know, somehow the sheriff that has to, you know, take take up with them, I will do that. And I will take actions in the world based on that. And it's it's pretty easy to demonstrate, but but hard to live, in the sense that you say, we're, we're always saying, and he mentions it when he talks to, to Danny Newland, and he says, you know, we're always blaming the other guy. We're always saying he's the problem when, in fact, you know, the, the problem very much could be and usually is with ourselves. It's the old, you know, you pay attention to the, the moat in your neighbor's eye and not the beam in your own. Well, there's one more little section I'd like you to read, and it reveals how Alan is setting a trap to reveal who the killer of who Ruth's killer was. So would you start um, where he says, so if Ruth's killer was delivered to you, could you kill him? Mm -hmm. So did you read that? Sure. Brief setup here. Um, Alan has Wednesday night meetings at his spiritual center, and everyone in town has turned out for this one uh, because it's intended to be a memorial for Ruth. And in the meantime, he has set up this trap, as you say, where he wants to say certain things and look at people's reactions and see if he can't suss out the killer. Well, his plans are kind of thrown in, you know, a monkey wrench is thrown into them by a man named Bert, who loved Ruth. And now he's yelling at, uh, at, at Alan saying, you know, you're, you're talking about how great she was. And, you know, his killer is, is in jail, her killer is in jail right now. And you used to tell us that nobody's good and evil, you know, anyway, so there's, there's a big argument going on, but this is how he ends it. And how he uses it as a way to, you know, look for reactions on people's faces. So he's, he's talking to Bert. They're having this argument. And he's trying to prove to Bert that any of us could choose evil. And he says, so, if Ruth's killer was delivered to you, could you kill him? You, yourself, with your own hands. Bert's eyes narrowed and hardened. Yes. Alan leaned over the podium. Picture it a moment. How would you do it? Would you want it to hurt? I imagine you would. You wouldn't want him to die quickly and painlessly, would you? You want revenge, and revenge takes time. 
Think about it. Alan saw Bert think about it. He softened his voice to a loud whisper. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Yes. Do you like it? Yes. Alan straightened, his shoulders back, his arms wide, and smiled. You see, Bert? Again, the crowd stirred, spoke questions in hums and hisses without words. Bert shook his head, a boxer recovering from a solid cross to the jaw. See what? You chose evil. I, I didn't do nothing. Not with your hands, no. You tricked me, Alan said. I tempted you. And Alan said, Anger. I tempted you. I tempted you. And, <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's the old story, isn't it? You know, yeah. with just a little temptation, we can all make that choice. Yeah. Uh, now, I want us to have time to talk about what you're working on next, because uh, this story, so we know, we'll let the listeners know that Alan survives because he's, mm -hmm. and the Little Red Hens are mm -hmm. characters in the book you're writing now. And I was intrigued by the title of it. And so I started reading up uh, things that I had forgotten about Buddhism. So uh, what are you working on now, Craig? Okay, well, it's the, it's the next book in the series, uh, Alan Wright, The Little Red Hens in Eden Ridge. It's eight months after the events um, in Where You Will Die. And I call it Killing Buddhas. And it comes from an old Buddhist saying uh, that goes, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. And the idea there is, uh, and you, you, you're familiar from your reading that um, the Buddha himself would say, you know, we all have Buddha nature. Uh, there is no Buddha in the sense that there is no person who is more holy, you know, uh, you know, than another person. And the idea of killing the Buddha is saying, if you look at another person, and you think, wow, they're amazing, they're this fantastic person, kill that idea. Kill the idea that any of us are inherently, centrally better than another. Do that for yourself. If you are thinking too highly of yourself, kill that idea of, of you as the Buddha. There's an old story in Buddhism that says that there was a man who was so holy, the birds used to come and light on his arms and shoulders, and then he achieved enlightenment, and the birds no longer came because he was no longer holy. Uh, so it's that idea. And I use that as a premise for the story of Alan's now having some success, and a man who is his mentor, who he has admired for many, many, many years, took inspiration to become the minister he is from this man. He comes to Eden Ridge at uh, Alan's invitation to read from his latest book and give talks and everything like that. It's just the most wonderful thing. And again, Alan just thinks the world of this man. Well, he gets killed <laughs> while he's there. Uh, and as the story unfolds and the investigation unfolds, all these things come out about this man that Alan never knew and that really paint him as, you know, a terrible person. And Alan struggles with this, with his own creed, saying none of us are better or worse than others. We all make the choices of, of, of evil and good every day. Here's this man I thought so highly of, who now is, you know, feet of clay situation. He's, he's beginning to learn of the man as a man. And it goes on from there in the sense that there are lots of, of uh, uh, secondary stories, subplots about other people either believing in somebody as a, as a high Buddha or, a, you know, a, an exceptional human being and having their hopes uh, dashed. Uh, and so then it goes all the way through to, you know, the, the, the resolution. So you've let us know what your next book will be, Killing Buddhas. And the one that we've been talking about today is your debut novel. It's a murder mystery, Where You Will Die. Thank you, Craig. Thanks very much, Nancy. Great to be with you. After a break, I'll be talking to author Brian Marshall, who has set his novel in the North State. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. For years at the Chico Farmers Market, Brian Marshall ran Sawmill Creek Farms and the nonprofit A Seat at the Table. Since then, he took up writing. His latest novella, A Stone Bled Dry, is a multi generational family drama set in the windswept plains of Northeast California's Modoc County. A Stone Bled Dry is Brian T. Marshall's fifth book. Brian Marshall, welcome. Great to be here, Nancy, as always. So it seems to me you write about a book a year. Yeah, and I might be falling behind this year with between all the disasters in the world, but, um, but I'm trying to forgive myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you apparently enjoy writing, and you support other writers locally because I'd like you to mention North State Writers because um, you're a member of North State Writers. Yeah, I was president for a while. I was vice, vice president. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there are a lot of people probably listening who have a book in mind, but they thought, well, I'm not sure. And so uh, I- explain to people what they can do because it's not limited. You're open to the public. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, we, we meet once a month. For, it's a free meeting. You just show up. Um, get to know the criteria. We generally have a speaker each month. It's someone who's in publishing, an author, someone relating to the field. Um, there are critique groups. It's just basically a really great supportive atmosphere, especially if you're just getting started because you see the range of possibilities out there. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. So uh, we'll extend an invitation that the North State Writers meet the third Monday of each month they meet at 6 p.m. in the Veterans Memorial Hall that's on Lindo Avenue. So um, maybe you'll see some new faces yes, next indeed. time you meet. Thank you, Brian, sure. for that. Now, you have this book that is um, has a very interesting opening sentence. Would you read that opening sentence? There's only one kind of call at 3 in the morning, the kind you don't want to answer. So your character then... Uh, is named Jack, and you just say the first ring finds him in a stupor. We don't know who him, who he is at this moment, but we soon find out, and we soon find out who this phone call is from. It's not the phone call he wants to answer. Who is this phone call from? It's from Lenora, his estranged ex-wife, and uh, yeah, they haven't spoken in three or four years. She's trouble. <laughs> and she knows it, if it's her on the phone, she's going to want something from him. So why don't you pick up there when um, he's, <laughs> he's saying, well, I figured all we've been through, you ought to be the first to know. That's what she says. And, of course, he says, know what? Well, that I'm finally getting clean. Just for a second, he closes his eyes, sees it all too clearly. The old bent spoon stained nearly black the flame from a cheap Bic lighter. Her bright red nails chipped and chewed as she grips that poor Bic tighter. Her hunger, her need, so flat out real you can see it burning too. Well, he finally offers, congratulations, I guess. He can hear her face as it starts to scowl, hear her smile dying. Come on, Jack, don't be that way. At least pretend you care. And he says, pretend? Which of us is pretending? And he calls her L for Lenora. Somehow the anger has snuck up on him, shown up out of the blue. By now you think they were past all that, that they both bled that stone dry. Now there's the title of your book. He tells her, or you say as the writer, they both bled that stone dry. Now, what do you mean by that? It just, the phrase came to mind, it combines... um you know, getting blood from a stone and just being bled out. So basically, it just kind of it says with all, all the anger, all the rage, everything there, it's, you're just through with it, done, and all you've got is this dead, lifeless thing at the core. And that's kind of what the relationship is. So I wanted to kind of keep that, as I it's mentioned several times in the, in the book, but it just was one of those phrases. It just grabbed me. It intrigued me. And I figured, well, if it intrigued me, then hopefully it'll intrigue a right, uh, potential reader. So these two characters that we meet... Jack and Lenora have a past that is not too pleasant. And I don't have personal experience, but I've seen this on TV or movies, this scene that you describe. And I think your readers will know, gosh, they were, what, what is this screen you say, this scene, 
You say the old bent spoon stained nearly black, the flame from a cheap, cheap big lighter. So what are they doing? Well, they were both, at that point, they were both heroin addicts. And Jack managed to crawl out of that hole and, and clean himself up. Lenora has been cleaning herself up for the last 30 years and never quite <laughs> managing. Because he tells her, I'm finally getting clean. But she has some, um, well, she's not been so lucky. Right. But why is she calling him in the middle of the night at 3.13? His clock says it's 3.13 a.m. Well, they basically, um, they had a child that also eventually became a heroin addict who in turn had a child of her own, their grandkid. Lenora has been doing a less-than-stellar job being a uh, caretaker for, for that daughter, Jewel. Um, but now that she's going to enroll in a program, she wants Jewel out of her life for the rest of the summer. And, and guess who gets to watch after her? <laughs> it's none other than Jack. So we have these three characters, Jack, his ex, Lenora, and now he's learning, oh, Lenora wants to pawn off this kid on me, uh, this granddaughter named Jewel. How old is the granddaughter? Uh, she's 14 years old, um, and they've, they've, they've met maybe once in his life, but basically he's pawned her off too, so he's not really ready for this intrusion in his life. He's a hardly arcanoclastic loner and can't stand humans. Yeah, so he's what you might you might call an old coot. Yeah, an old right. coot. Okay, so he's living in, where is he living? He's living in uh, outside of Alturas in Modoc County. That area of California has always fascinated me. I mean, here's California. Everyone thinks Hollywood and L.A., but up in the northeast corner, it's, it's another world. It's harsh. It's barren. It's got... It doesn't let someone make mistakes because it's, it's, it's a tough environment, and, and if you're not careful, it'll, it'll take you down with it. Well, you have your settings in your previous books, different places, but uh, this, I'm wondering, well, how familiar are you with this area near Alturas? Just a few tr hiking trips, camping trips. So, yeah, I'm by no means an expert, but um, originally I was thinking of setting it in Wyoming or Montana, but those seemed a little too predictable as, oh, that's the kind of mountainous, rugged place you go to if you want to get away from the world. And I thought, well, why don't we use Modoc County instead because I think it's a little more hard scrabble. My guest is Brian T. Marshall. His latest book, his fifth book, A Stone Bled Dry. And would you describe the cover of your book, Brian? Well, basically, I gave my wife, Nancy, who's an artist of, of some renown, I gave her carte blanche and said, you come up with something. I, I would want to see mountains. I want to see a stone, and I want to see blood. So she just had never used the program before. She played around with a, a, a Image, I forget which one. I probably should advertise it anyway. But the program she found online, and within an hour she had she had done this, and I just it's eye catching, and it just yeah, it's again like the title. It it's meant to intrigue someone who's who's browsing through it and say, what the heck is that all about? Well, do you know you don't give credit to your wife. You say. This name of this person named Nancy is not the last name that you use. Oh, so no, we don't yeah, know she, when we look. Because I was curious. Hmm, I wonder who designed this cover, who did the artwork. So I looked to see, and this was a name I didn't recognize. But it's your wife. Yeah, she's right. Yeah, she kept her maiden name. If she had taken, she's a Nancy also, and my mom is a Nancy, and we uh. had the problem of two Nancy Marshalls <laughs> living in the same town. And as they say, this town ain't big enough for both of us. <laughs> so she graciously kept her maiden name for most transactions. So you um, talk about this this idea of a stone bled dry. So are you saying that stony hearts bleed? I'm saying that that um, the old the old thing is that you the, the cliche is you can't get blood from a stone. But I'm saying yes, in fact you can. Um, there's also the image of the heart of stone. Yeah. So. It all fits together, but in a way that's not quite rational. I, I think that's the best, the best imagery is stuff that cannot be explained in concrete terms. It just evokes a response from the person experiencing it. So that's kind of was my take with it. If it, it, it doesn't have to make logical sense, but I think out of an emotional, intuitive sense, it all kind of clicks. So that was my feeling. We do. I think that we often think, oh, we're rational people. But when you get down to it, people do not for the most part, I don't think, make decisions rationally. 
I remember a friend who bought this car. She was going to get just a simple car, and she ended up getting with all the bells and whistles because she liked the color of the car. Right. Yeah. So no, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. We 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 yeah. As you say, we think we're rational beings, but but we're driven by all sorts of impulses and motives we're not even aware of. So your main character, Jack, uh, hears from his former uh, wife and about this granddaughter. So what happens when the granddaughter appears? Well, she shows up at the Greyhound. They, they stare at each other and say, wow, you look a lot different than the last photo. She's, she's become a, a young woman, which shocks him because he tells her to give her his little girl in pigtails. He's a, a crusty old coot that she she can't really relate to, and so they have to somehow find a common language. And the middle, the first third of the book is just them learning to communicate. Him learning that despite her painted nails and her her fashion attire, she's actually a pretty hard, hard, tough, straight thinking, straight shooting girl. Um, she's very gracious and not immediately challenging him, and she gives him some respect and listens to what he says. So so it's this dance as they sort of negotiate with each other and start to, like, trust each other enough to open up with each other. Well, you know, it's hard enough, I think, for parents and their their children because of just that one generation. But here's uh, two generations, the uh, the grandfather and the granddaughter right. who have to reconcile, reconcile. and come together with um, with an understanding of each other. So let me remind people the name of this novella, A Stone Bled Dry. And knowing you, Brian, you must be at work on your next book. Yeah, I have, I've got a, a few of them in, in the works, I'm, but I'm still tinkering with play with them, so I'm not sure when they're going to be released to, to the world at large. Well, we'll look forward to that. And also uh, your invitation for people to join you at the Writers Group. That would be great if Monday. they could. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Nancy. I would also like to thank my first guest, Craig Heath, who has written a book which he dedicates to Paradise, California. Now we're presenting a new segment here on Nancy's Bookshelf that we're calling The Writer's Room, where we're featuring short segments by North State authors. First Drink There is a maraschino cherry at the bottom of the abandoned glass, stuck under ice and the brown, burnt-smelling liquid, Cards swoosh up and slap down. Voices laugh loud and then murmur. Cigarettes burn with red dots. Blue smoke rises to the top of heads. It hovers there like a veil, covering the adults. Crouched on the stairs, peeking through the railing, they can't see her. She is invisible in her crazy daisy shorts, both hands wrapped around the cold, wet, cherry-holding glass. She lifts the glass to her lips, holds her breath and drinks. Ice hits her nose, the liquid scorches her throat, and then warm tentacles squirm across her chest, settling in her belly. Ice is clinking under the cloak of smoke while the adults laugh, drink, and crunch down on mixed nuts. She is invisible, with a warmed middle and a smooth buzzing feeling on her skin. She retrieves the cherry and plucks it off the stem with her teeth. It's sweet and infused with the brown liquid. She twirls the stem between her fingers and strokes it across her forearm. It feels good. Daria Booth. The Mistake of Waiting The mistake most commonly made by those asked to wait is to focus on that which has not yet happened. The anticipation of action the expectation of the event, the anxiety of delay. These obscure the truth of waiting, which is a radiant stasis. He knows what he's waiting for. He knows it's coming, sooner or later. He just doesn't know exactly when or how or what happens next. These are the things he thinks about, but that is precisely his mistake. To focus on a mysterious future, a thing at once terrifying and banal, and not on the wait itself. He will be waiting for a good while yet. He ought to turn his attention accordingly. There is only the waiting itself, for which there is no wait. The truth of waiting is that one should endeavor to do only that, without expectation, 
or desire. Accept this bright parade of moments. It is your story now. Rob Davidson Ancestry.com We make meaning from our experiences. As a black woman, I can't pretend that those meanings and experiences begin with me. Ancestry.com said that my bloodline arrived somewhere around 1725 with the French Louisiana colonizers, I mean settlers. And then around 1750, my ancestors became Creole. We'll never know if it was by choice, but I know it lasted all the way to my grandmother who raised me dark-skinned while she spent her youth passing, which passed the torch on to me, building up hate for my curls and complexion while dancing in white spaces, hoping that money and status would help me blend. See, my Ancestry.com says I'm 22% descended from Cameroon and Congo, and 21% descended from Nigeria, and I Google the images and see my cheekbones and the curve of my eyes, how my nose has settled on my face. But my Ancestry.com also says 18% from Scotland, 10% England, and 22% Germanic Europe. I Google those images and see my education. The doorway I slid through because of choices made for my grandmother to pass, to colonize, I mean, settle, in places that she wouldn't ever been allowed to go. My meanings are compiled of appendices, double-lettered A through Z, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who has perceptions based from the cataloged history first. So why don't we take that into account, that one-size-fits-all isn't a tall glass of water for anyone, even the people that created it? Are we really that afraid to find something more refreshing? Nerissa Wallace. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.